Please open your Bibles again to Paul's epistle to the Romans. Romans chapter 6. A couple of weeks ago, I took my son Abe to Dick's Sporting Goods to buy a knee brace. We pulled into the parking lot and made our way to a parking slot. And as we pulled into that slot, at that very moment, there were two women who were pulling out of the slot next to us clearly in a hurry. In fact, they almost hit our car as they zipped out of that parking slot and made their way out of the parking lot. At that moment, we saw a customer uh, running from the store after their car to take a picture of their license plate. But the thing that was interesting is that the workers at Dick's Sporting Goods seem unfazed by this entire thing. They just stood there by the door watching the whole scene unfold. These women had stolen a number of things from the store. I spoke with one of the employees and he said, oh yeah, these women come in all the time and steal stuff. And the employees have been instructed to let them go free. I guess there are simply too many risks to try to stop them. Pastor Dick has told me the same thing happens all of the time at Quick Trip. And I saw a reel on social media this week that had four men running out of a Gucci store with armloads full of merchandise and nobody running after them. I guess even though there's a law against shoplifting, the law doesn't appear to have any power anymore. When I was a kid, shoplifting was against the law and people were busted when they broke the law. We don't need to get into the details, but let's just say I know that that was true (laughs) from the experience. But apparently, that's no longer the case. Apparently, people are no longer under the shoplifting laws. They're free to take what they want. But just because people today are free to steal, should they? Paul has been arguing throughout our study of Romans that in Christ we are no longer under the law. We are under grace. We are under the reign of grace. We are not saved by works. We are saved by faith in Christ, saved by grace. And now that we are free from sin, we are under grace, not the law. So in our passage this morning, Paul asks the logical question. Since we're no longer under the law, but under grace, should we continue to live a life of sin? Since keeping the law is not the thing that makes you right in the eyes of God, should we just live a life of lawlessness? If we're free from sin, does that mean that we are free to sin? Paul's answer in the Greek is no way, Jose. Just because you're free from sin does not mean that you are free to sin. In fact, freedom from sin and freedom from the law 
is not absolute freedom. Freedom from one form of slavery leads to another form of slavery. But this is what Paul wants us to see this morning. That new kind of slavery, it is a much better kind of slavery. So if you would, please stand for the reading of God's Word. Beginning in verse 15. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now... Present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at the time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification, and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So the main point of this passage is simple. We should serve God, not sin. We should serve God, not sin. Or to use other language in this passage, we should serve righteousness. God's righteous decrees and not sin. This comes out in the center of the passage in verse 19. Verse 19 is the only command in the passage, and so it's really important. It says this, Present your members... It is your bodies, your lives as slaves to righteousness. That's the command. We serve God, not sin. But why? Well, everything else, if this command is at the center of the passage, everything else surrounding this command is giving us three reasons why we should serve God and not sin. In verse 16, Paul lays out a fundamental principle. Then he applies that principle, not just in the abstract, but he applies it to the Roman Christians in two ways. Verses 17 to 18, he reminds them that now that they are Christians, there's a new reality in their life. A new reality that should motivate them to serve God and not sin. And in verses 20 to 23, he calls them to consider 
negative results of serving sin and positive results of serving God. So this morning, we're going to look at that principle. We're going to look at the new reality for all who are Christians, and we're going to look at the results. I'll offer three reasons through these movements why we should do that. Serve God, not sin. The first reason comes from a fundamental principle, lays the groundwork for the rest of Paul's argument. It's in verse 16. Here's how I would summarize it. Everybody serves somebody. Everybody serves somebody or something. Paul begins this entire thing with dispelling a myth, shattering an illusion that many of us have in our American culture today. The illusion that there is such a thing as absolute freedom. He says, don't be deluded by that notion. There is no absolute freedom. Everybody is a slave to someone or to something. I know that may sound harsh. Later in verse 19, he says, I'm speaking to you in a human terms, but this is true at a fundamental level. Everyone is a slave to someone or something. And Paul knows that his readers know that this is true. He is using a metaphor that would have been very close to their real lives in a way that we can't quite understand. You see, scholars say that most of the Roman Christians during the first century would have been very poor. And in order to alleviate their poverty, many of them would at one point in their life sold themselves into slavery. Maybe something like indentured servitude, where you present yourselves willingly, not you are forced, you present yourself willingly to a person who becomes your slave master in order to pay off a debt, maybe, or maybe you're so poor, it is simply a way to have a livelihood of food and clothing and shelter. You present yourself willingly to them and you then become a slave to them. All of Paul's readers would have been familiar with this concept. And so that's why Paul starts out by saying, if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one that you obey. Here's the principle for us today. Whatever we give ourselves to, we are a slave to that. Whoever or whatever is calling the shots on our life, we are a slave to that person or that thing. Paul's point, don't be deluded by the illusion that there's absolute freedom. This illusion is so prominent in our culture. I could give multiple examples of how this works, but let me just give two prominent examples. Some people are under the illusion that we in this country have financial freedom because we live in a free market. But when you present yourselves to money, when you give yourselves over 
to the pursuit of money, you serve money. Money then becomes your master. It's calling the shots in your life. You obey its demands. Some people are under the illusion that there is a thing called free love. This is so prominent in, my, in our culture and it makes me very sad. Because all who buy into the lie of free love end up serving sex. It is controlling them and wreaking havoc in their lives. There's no absolute freedom. That's what Paul is saying. And I'd be remiss here if I did not quote Bob Dylan who says, you're going to have to serve somebody. I know I've used that quote a dozen times over the last dozen years, but that's the point that Paul is making here. You're going to have to serve somebody. We all make decisions about who we're going to serve. Paul takes this metaphor, he takes this principle in order to help him answer the question that he began with in verse 15. Is freedom from sin, freedom to sin? Does being under grace grant us liberty to sin? By no means. Why? Because you are slaves, verse 16, of the one whom you obey. Either sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. There is no absolute freedom. Everybody serves somebody or something. The question is, who are you serving? And let me just say that where I'm going today, I'm going to call you to choose this day whom you will serve. Make a choice. That's the principle. He now takes this principle and applies it to the lives of the Roman Christians that he is writing to, which also applies to the lives of the Christians in this room today. He begins by reminding them of their new reality now that they are Christians. And this gives us the second reason we should serve God, not sin. Here it is. God is your new master and gave you a new heart. You see, when you became a Christian... Something new happened. You have a new reality now. God is now your master. And God has given you a new heart. So easy for us to miss things when we read familiar passages of Scripture like this. And I don't want you to miss this. Paul lays down this principle in verse 16. We just went over it. Everybody serves somebody. But he doesn't simply move on in his rational argument at that point. He's going to get on with his rational argument, but before he does so, he erupts into praise. Here's the principle. Everybody serves somebody, but thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that you, who were once slaves of sin, you have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which 
you were committing. You were committed. Or the standard of teaching to which you were delivered over to. He's thanking God for what God has done in their lives. They were once slaves to sin, but God has broken into their lives, set them free from sin, as verse 18 says. Their freedom from sin, though, is not freedom to sin. They are now slaves of righteousness, slaves of God. That's the reality. Why should they serve God? Well, they should do what is true. If you are a slave to God, then you should serve God. God is their new master. Notice the tense of the verbs in verses 17 to 18. Maybe underline them. You've become obedient from the heart. You've been set free from sin. You've become slaves of righteousness. Who's the subject of these passive verbs? It's God. Let me just put it really simply. God has made you obedient from the heart. God has set you free from sin. God has made you slaves of righteousness. God has worked a mighty work in your life, giving you a new heart and transferring you from the dominion of darkness into a new domain where He, the sovereign God, is now your master. You're going to have to serve somebody. Since sin is no longer your master, since God is now your master, doesn't it make sense that you would serve Him? But there's more than that. There's other good news about this new reality For people who are in Christ. The work that God has done in your life. Not only gives you a new master. It also gives you the ability to obey your new master. God. When we were in our sin. When we were under sin. Slaves to sin. We've learned this many times over the last number of weeks. We didn't have the ability to serve God. Everything we did, even the best stuff that we did, was not in service to God. It was in service to sin. But now, if you are in Christ, you're dead to sin. We saw this last week. You're alive to God. The Holy Spirit has broken into your life, given you a new heart that now enables you to obey God, which you weren't able to do before. So now you can, imperfectly, but you can. So shouldn't you want to? Where do I get this? I get it from verse 17, which says you've become, so God has made you obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching. That standard of teaching, or the pattern of teaching, literally, I believe refers to the gospel. We see Paul talk about this in other places where he talks about the pattern of his teaching in 2 Timothy, reference to the gospel. I think that's what's being referred to here. Most scholars agree that's what's being referred to here. What was one of the goals of the book of Romans? That people would come to the obedience of the faith. That is, that they would believe 
the gospel, obey the gospel. And now that they've been given a new heart by God, they were enabled to believe the gospel. But not only that, the obedience of faith also means the obedience that flows out of faith. Obedience to the righteousness of God. You weren't able to do that before. But now you are. So why would you not want to? The purpose of being freed from sin is not to free you to serve sin, but to free you to serve God. They had to make a choice, and so do we. Everybody serves somebody. And see, this is the thing that's different in the Bible than in the choices we think of in our world today. Jesus says, you can't serve two masters at the same time. You have to choose one. We live in a day where we like to have our cake and eat it too. We want to make all kinds of choices, but that's a different principle here. I went to Panera on Friday, and you see this illustrated there. At Panera, you don't have to choose between a salad or a sandwich or soup. You can pick two. (laughs) And on the border, it's even better. Uh, You don't have to choose between an enchilada, an empanada, a taco, a tostada. You can pick two, or for $2 more, you can pick three. And if you're really hungry, you can pick four. We live in a culture of many options that enables us to make many different choices all at once. But that illustration is different than what Paul is arguing for here. When it comes to following Jesus, when it comes to our life as Christians or or not Christians, we can only pick one. We either choose the Lord or we choose a life of sin. We either choose the one true God or we choose idols. You can't serve two masters at the same time. I love the way that Joshua puts this in the last chapter of the book of Joshua. He calls the people, calls them together to renew the covenant, the covenant that God made with them when He brought them out of slavery in Egypt. And he says to them, you choose this day whom you will serve. Either the gods beyond the river that your father served or Yahweh, the one true God. And the people respond and they say, we will serve the Lord. Why do they say that? They say that because it was the Lord who brought them out of slavery In Egypt, it only makes sense that they would serve the Lord. That word slavery in Egypt and the word serve the Lord, they're the same word. If God has brought us out of slavery in Egypt, then doesn't it make sense that we would serve as slaves of God? There is no middle ground. You have to choose this day whom you will serve. You have to choose every day whom you will serve. And what Paul is trying to do is to appeal to you, to appeal to you that if God has done a major work in your life, 
If God has forgiven us of our sins, freed us from slavery to sins, given us new heart, made us slaves to righteousness, then doesn't it make sense that God is the one that we would serve? The reality of who we now are as Christians should motivate us. What is true should inform what we do. And if it's true, and it is, that if you're in Christ, you are a new creation, and you now belong to God, then shouldn't you serve God? Paul moves now from the reality to the results and gives us the third reason we should serve God, not sin. Here it is. When you serve God, it produces good fruit. When you serve God, it produces good fruit. There there are benefits, in other words. Not that we should be in it for the benefits, but there are benefits. There is a cost-benefit analysis that we can do in our minds. And in verses 20 to 23, Paul is doing something like that. He's contrasting two different sets of results. Negative results from following sin, positive results from following and serving God. You reap what you sow. Paul is arguing something like that here, though as we'll see, not in an absolute sense. There's a repeated word in the passage. I want you to notice it. Maybe, again, you can underline it so you can see his train of thought. It's the word leads. Verse 16. He says, serving sin leads to death. Serving obedience leads to righteousness. That same word in verse 19. Serving impurity, serving lawlessness, it leads to more and more lawlessness. But serving righteousness leads to sanctification. He continues this train of thought in verses 20 to 22, but he changes the language. He introduces a metaphor, the metaphor of fruit. He says, when you were slaves of sin... What fruit were you getting at that time? Think back to that. What were the results you were getting at that time? What was the fruit of a life of sin? The fruit of sin was shame. Shame. When you think back on what you did back then, you are ashamed now, aren't you? Why would you want to stir up more shame? Let let me show you how this works. In verse 19, he says, You once presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness and more lawlessness. That impurity there is a reference to sexual immorality. But impurity and lawlessness in whatever form it takes leads to more of it. Sin begets more sin and more sin. It's a downward spiral. The more we give ourselves over to sin, the more we want to sin. And the more we do sin. And the more we sin, the more shame we experience. That's surely not the life that you want to live. You've already done that. You all know the shame that came from the life that we lived in sin. 
There's no ultimate shame if we're in Christ, but come on, let's be honest. Are there not things that you've done in your life that you're ashamed of? Well, that shame is still present whenever we present ourselves to sin now. Whenever we give ourselves over to a life of impurity and lawlessness, you know what I'm talking about. You know it's a miserable place to live your life. You can count on it. If you're a true believer, when you indulge in sin, you're not even able to enjoy it. At least not for long. It's not true freedom. It binds us. And it is shameful. Why would you want to live under those so-called benefits? You were free from righteousness at that time. Free to do whatever you liked. But how was that working out for you? Paul says that when you serve God, there are different results, different fruit. Verse 22, the fruit that you get leads to sanctification. The God who gave you a new heart, when you give yourselves over to him day in and day out, he will keep working in you. There will be fruit, abounding fruit in your life. You will be sanctified. In other words, you will become more and more like Jesus. You will increasingly reflect the image of God, which is what you were created to do. The word sanctification literally means being set apart. It's the same word that we get for holiness. And in the Old Testament, there were all kinds of things that were holy. They were sanctified, set apart specially to serve God. Priests were set apart. The tabernacle was set apart. The sacrifices in the tabernacle and in the temple system, they were all set apart. And they were set apart for a purpose, to serve God, to worship God. The thing that amazes me is that when we come to the New Testament, this language of Old Testament worship is now being applied to speak of the everyday lives of Christians like you and me. We are sanctified, set apart for service to God, for worship of God. That's the fruit that is ours increasingly as we present ourselves to God. Well, how is that a benefit that would motivate us to serve God instead of sin. I think there are a number of things that we can infer from this benefit that is listed, the benefit of sanctification. For one, it's simply a better life. When you're growing in grace, when you're becoming more like God, your life is more enjoyable than a life of sin and shame. Now, don't get me wrong. I'm not a health and wealth preacher. I'm not saying that your life is going to be easier as you are growing more and more into the likeness of Jesus, as you are being sanctified, your life may get harder, but it will still be better. That should motivate you to want to serve God. But there is more. 
the other reason it should motivate us is it's what we were created for, what we were redeemed for. We were created to serve God. We were created to glorify God. Paul says, this is the will of God in 1 Thessalonians 4. Do you want to know what the will of God is? Your sanctification. That's what God wants for you. Your life will be more enjoyable, more of a blessing, good, as you are cutting with the grain of God's purposes for you in your life. But even more reasons why sanctification is a benefit that should motivate serving God. The fruit of serving God is sanctification. The end of serving God, we are told, is eternal life. Now follow the logic with me here. Serving sin leads to death. Serving God leads to eternal life. But eternal life is not simply something that awaits us out there in the future. Eternal life is something that happens right now if we are in Christ, if we are born again, if we belong to Jesus We have eternal life right now. A different kind of life than the life that we had before. John 17, 3, Jesus says this, this is eternal life that they know you. The only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. The goal of all of life is to know God. The chief end of man if I can say it this way, is to know God. For as we grow in our knowledge of God, we will glorify Him and enjoy Him forever. We come to know God when we place our faith in Jesus Christ. We will know God more fully when we see Him in His glory. But now, we are being called to a life of growing, in our knowledge of God, of abundant life. Friends, there is nothing better than knowing God. And getting to know God more should motivate us to serve Him. And as we do, that will produce more fruit. We will glorify Him more and we will enjoy Him more. This is great motivation for serving God. I hope you believe that. I hope that you think that that is true. Now, I want to be very clear. I am not saying that if you serve God, that you earn eternal life. And just to make sure that we're clear on that, I think Paul almost anticipates that. He says in verse 23, the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's making a deliberate contrast. Those who serve sin get what they earn. They earn death, separation from God, eternal judgment from God. But eternal life is different. It's not what we earn. It's a free gift. It's by grace. It's through Christ Jesus our Lord. And that, in my mind, is a final motivation for why we should serve God and not sin. It's because of God's grace. We see this throughout the scriptures. We love God, why? Because he first loved us. So we serve God, why? 
Because he sent his son, the son of man, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. God's grace should motivate the pursuit of godliness. Paul's driving this point home. We saw it last week. We see it this week. Being under grace does not grant us license to sin. Living in sin is slavery. It's not freedom. And anybody who has a proper understanding of the gospel, they will not have a shallow view of salvation. So let me ask a question to close things today. I want to get you thinking about what we've learned this week and what we learned last week. When you think of the word salvation, what comes to mind? When you are saved, what comes to mind? For many people, we think to the past. We think of our justification. The moment that we placed our faith in Jesus and were declared righteous, not guilty, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Or maybe we think of our regeneration, that moment where the Spirit of God brought us, we were born again by the Spirit of God, transferred from the dominion of darkness into the dominion of life. And both of those things are glorious truths of our salvation in Jesus Christ, but they're only part of salvation. They are only, if I could put it this way, the beginning. J.C. Ryle says that a person who thinks Jesus' death and resurrection were only to provide justification and forgiveness of sin, that person has so much to learn. Whether that person knows it or not, he is making our blessed Lord only a half-savior. A half-savior. Is Jesus to you only a half-savior? One who justifies you, forgives you, gives you new life, but then leaves it at that and is not transforming your life now. The testimony of the Scriptures repeatedly tells us the same thing. There's a purpose of what Jesus did on the cross that is beyond justification and regeneration. God sent His Son not only to justify, but to sanctify. Not only to declare us righteous, but to increasingly make us more and more righteous that we would serve God and not sin. Ephesians 5 says, Christ gave Himself up for the church that He might sanctify her. Titus 2 Jesus gave himself up for us to redeem us from all unlawlessness and to purify for himself a people who are zealous for good works. That's one of the purposes for which Christ died. 1 Peter 2, he bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Have you ever thought of the cross that way? That that was one of the purposes of Jesus dying. So that you might be sanctified and bring glory to Him. Our statement of faith summarizes it so well. 
God's justifying grace must not be separated from His sanctifying power and purpose. Did you come in today with only a half Savior? I pray that as you leave this place that you will be hungry for God to complete the work that He has begun in you. That you will be hungry not to give your life over to sin because you are covered with grace, but to give your life over to God so that you would be transformed into the image of His Son to bring glory to Him. That the Holy Spirit would work in you so that you would enjoy Him and experience the abundant life that can be found only in Him. True freedom is not found in a life given over to sin. True freedom is found in service to God. Would you pray with me? Father, it's so easy to be deluded. I pray that you would help us see what is true that you would help us to grasp the reality of who we are in Christ. Dead to sin. Alive to you. No longer slaves to sin. But we belong to you. I pray that that would motivate us to serve you. Not to earn your favor. Because that is only in Christ. But because we have your favor, because we belong to you, because we were bought with a price, motivate us to serve you, knowing that it's not only for your glory, but it's also for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.